everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Podcast. Today's episode is dedicated to the full recovery of Yosef Chaim Serge Ben Gazala Alis. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or in memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Each week we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea connected to that week's Parsha. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Matan lecturer Yael Leibowitz to speak about Parshat Sav and purity systems. Yael, it's great to have you here. Thanks so much. Great to be here. So let, let's dive in. Uh, we're going to be speaking about an idea that I think has general relevance to all of the book of Ayikra, not necessarily specifically to this week's Parsha, but I think as we are beginning to delve into the book of Ayikra, it really is something that will illuminate all of our further study of the book. So please take us into this, uh, this idea that you wanted to share with us today. The idea that I'm talking about is actually, I was first introduced to it or first exposed to it when I read some of the articles and then the full-length work by a man named Jonathan Clowens. Um, and I, I, I think, really, that his contributions sort of shifted, at least for myself, uh, the way we think about and the way we talk about the whole system of purity. Um, he actually, it was not his own, it was not his full original idea, uh, Jonathan Clowens really quotes the scholars that preceded him. He talks about, for example, Jacob Milgram and Tikva Freimer Kensky, uh, among others. One of the most fascinating personalities, and I know, Yosefa, you looked into uh, him a bit, is that, that Jonathan Clowens quotes is actually of David Svi Hoffman, who was a German scholar, if you want to fill in yeah, uh, sure. some of the details. Uh, for those who are our regular listeners know that I often like to talk about Kasuto, and Kasuto and Rav David Svi Hoffman are actually deeply related in their approach to, to biblical study. He was born in 1843 and he died in 1921 in Berlin. He actually originally is from Hungary, uh, which was a much more conservative, far less a modern influenced Jewish world. Uh, and, but he eventually moves and studies in Germany and that deeply influences his approach to Torah. Uh, and he really, Im- he imbibes the more open approach involving studying academia. He also, uh, did, uh, in, did a doctorate as well, uh, and his, well, he wrote many different works. His commentary on the Torah is really the one that received the most, the most acclaim. Uh, and he actually started his first commentary. He wrote on Sefer Vaikra. He started there. He did not start with Sefer Breshit. Uh, he wrote Vaikra and Varim, and his other works that we have are actually, uh, compiled notes that were written by students of Dreshot and Shirim that he gave, uh, in the yeshiva where he was working. Um, but he was deeply influenced by, by the world of academia. Uh, and he's sort of a, sort of a prototype of a contemporary Orthodox Jewish scholar, uh, who felt and experienced the tension between academia and his, and his religious life and his religious approach. Um, he, he was a leading authority on halacha, uh, and also midrash halacha. But, uh, I will just say in comparison, for example, to Kasuto, who I like to talk about, uh, Rav David Hoffman writes in his introduction that he 
will remain faithful no matter what, meaning taking a non-scholarly approach, he will remain faithful to the tenets that he believes are tenets of belief, like mosaic authorship of the Torah, uh, and, you know, without even explaining why at the outset, he rejects all academic approaches that relate to the documentary hypothesis, which Kasuta does as well, by the way. But while Kasuta, just as a as an opposing example, his boundaries are much more blurred and he incorporates many more academic beliefs into his writing and adopts them as his own. Rodevitz V. Hoffman really sets his boundaries much more clearly uh, and ideologically. And he's not at all, um, he has no problem. He doesn't shy away from that at all. So he, he's a really seminal figure. His commentary is Excellent. Uh, anybody who prepares Shurim, you can access them in a very easy format on the Alatora website. They're not sponsoring the, the episode, <laughs> but I'm just putting it out there because it's the best way to access him uh, for free. And uh, and so his his commentary really is informed by the world of academic study, uh, but he uh, remains loyal uh, ideologically to traditional uh, values and assumptions. Yeah. So I think, you know, he was just a fascinating figure, like you're saying, sort of synthesizing the two worlds that I think so many of us and, you know, uh, making a lot of assumptions about our audience. But I think many people that are listening to this podcast are sort of always struggling with and, and sort of trying to synthesize. So it was just really fascinating. You have, you know, someone from Moetzek Doleha Torah that's being quoted by a 21st century Bible scholar talking about impurity systems in early Christianity. So I just I thought that was very, very cool. Um, and, you know, and what he really talks about, again, you know, Jonathan Clown's building on some of the earlier scholarship, what he basically does, um, you know, and it's, it's sort of, I think, beyond the confines of the sheer bit to try to discuss why these two systems ultimately get conflated and why uh, in modern times, when we're, you know, looking at the system of purity and impurity, we need someone like these scholars to point it out to us. Um, but essentially what he, he notes is that there are actually two different systems of impurity, right? And I think when you know, I've done some, let's say, field experiments. When I walk into a classroom and I say, free associate, we're going to play a game of broken telephone. I say the word impurity. You tell me what you think. Right. So most of the hands in the classroom, and I imagine if we right, gave a, we wasted 30 seconds to let people on this podcast come up with their own answer. So people would say probably, right, my, my guess would be uh, things like tumat nita, uh, tumat mate, right, menstrual impurity, the impurity from coming in contact with the, with, with the dead Sarat, right, scale disease, different types of impurities that I think most of us think of. And, and all of those impurities that sort of first come to mind for obvious reasons uh, fall into the category that he talks about that he calls ritual impurity. And ritual impurity, again, I think is sort of the first place we go to mentally when we talk about the concept of impurity. And impurity, there's a couple of things we know about it, right? So we know that uh, for the most part, ritual impurity is something that's generated by natural biological processes. Right? So it's really, for the most part, if you are a biologically sound person, you cannot go through life without becoming ritually impure at some point. It's something that's unavoidable. And there are different durations when you're, you know, that you're going to be impure for different durations, sometimes until sundown, sometimes for a week, post-childbirth, it could be even longer than that. Um, but it's something really that, that's essentially unavoidable. Um, it's also contagious, though, right? And so... You know, and I'm using the word contagious, really, for lack of a better term, right? But if someone is... Transmittable. Transmittable. Yeah, that's another word, right? Contagious is just so charged <laughs> these days, so we won't use the word contagious. Um, correct. It's transmittable, right? Because even if I'm wearing an N95, I'm still going to become Tomei. Um, but it's, it's something that's certainly transmittable because uh, the body becomes impure, right? But 
it's temporary and you could be purified and there are specific rituals and prescriptions for ways in which the Kohen can purify someone that becomes ritually impure. And I, I think most importantly, really, for our discussion um, is that ritual impurity is not only unavoidable, but there's nothing sinful about it. Right? There are no warnings in the Torah, don't become impure. There's absolutely nothing sinful. The only time really that ritual impurity becomes associated at all with the concept of sin is when if you're impure and you don't purify yourself properly, or if you're impure and you enter the, uh, the pure precinct. Right. So so those are the the that's the distinction, really, I think that's most important. Um, And then, of course, you know, beyond that, not only is it not sinful, but if we take it to the sort of the next logical step. So there are many positive commandments in the Torah that in order to fulfill them, you need to become impure. Right. You need to become impure to bury the dead. And that's a mitzvah. If you're going to have children, you're going to become necessarily impure. Um, So I think that's something that's really, really important when we talk about. Uh, impurity, ritual impurity, particularly uh, that it, it no in no way affects the moral status of the person within the community. It's never permanent, um, and, and I think that's a really first important first step. Um, yeah, Yosef, I think you mentioned last week when we spoke something interesting. Yeah, I you know I play that game whenever I sit down with a new kala. Uh, another hat of mine for the listeners who don't know is that I'm a majichat kalot. Answer a lot of questions also in the world of ilchot nida. And whenever I sit down with a new kala, I, I play that game with her. I have to say that there's been a, a tremendous shift over the years, and most of them they know now somehow, even if they never learned it formally, that there's nothing bad about um, being needed. There's no there's no sinful element. There's nothing, uh, but but even when they know that, I still try and see if somewhere subconsciously they have imbibed that belief, meaning that there's something uh, there's something wrong about it. Um, and I always emphasize that point that there, we, and we learn that whole parak together, and we're sort of referencing here. Um, uh, that really a uh, chapter 15 that really references these these different uh, impurities but these are all things that are uh, unavoidable as you said and there's nothing there's nothing negative about them and so whenever i i meet a new bride i always emphasize that point as well um you know if you're going to be a human you're going to you're going to become impure uh, and there's interesting differences for how long the duration is for different kinds of impurities but that, yeah, there's definitely nothing negative about it. So I think that's a really important point that's worth emphasis. And while the emotional reality is created specifically by, we'll take the example of Hilchonida, can make one sometimes feel that negativity, it shouldn't be conflated with the fact that it's there at the initial source. Right, right. Yeah, that's huge. There's actually a fascinating work, um, I'm sure you've seen it, Yosefa, a uh, number of works by uh, she was actually an anthropologist uh, named Mary Douglas, and she sort of not she's not coming from the world of Torah, she's coming from the world of anthropology, but she studies uh, Tanakh. You know, she looks at how impurity systems appear in Tanakh, and you know, she has all sorts of really really interesting uh, theories about concept of pollution, the concept of what's dirty, right? And and as human beings, how we perceive dirty, how we per, you know how we see something that's an anomaly as something that's off or something that it's just, it's, it's really, really fascinating. Like you're saying to sort of see where the subconscious associations uh, with certain natural states come from, uh, which I think is important. Yeah. But um, I'll, I'll, with your permission, I'll move on to the moral impurity. Cause I think that's really, you know, the piece that's most new to people. Um, actually, if, if it's okay, I can, I'll start with a pasuk um, that I think, or a couple of psukim that I think really sum up, um, the concept of impurity that most of us, it's really interesting. You know, when we talk about ritual impurity, 
So we, we, for those of us that, that sort of, you know, have internalized it. So we say, okay, so this person is ritually impure and they can't go into the Beit HaMikdash. That's prohibited, right? Or uh, they can't be with their husband for this amount of time until they're purified. And we, we take the concept of purity literally, right? But then there's this second category of impurity. Um, you know, if ritual impurity stands in opposition to purity, so a person who is, uh, become, comes in contact with the dead can't enter the Beit HaMikdash, for example, so the second category that Jonathan Clowns calls, uh, calls moral impurity um, is actually connected and yet a wholly separate system on some level. So um, if we look, for example, in, uh, in Sefer Vayikra in chapter 18, so the Psukim, it says, Hashem is listing here all the different prohibitions, in this case, specifically in Parakut Chet, uh, it's the sexual prohibitions, the, the Isurim of Arayot. And Hashem warns us, he says, don't do these things, right? Because these are the things that the people that lived in the land before you got here used to do. And then Hashem says, what happened? Right? So the Tanakh, the, the Torah really speaks here of the effect of moral impurity as impacting the land, the end result being that the land spits us out, right? Which kind of sounds a little wacky, and I think on some level, it's why, um, I guess, as sort of modern thinkers, we sometimes read that pasuk and just assume it's symbolic, right? Oh, the land symbolically becomes impure. But what Jonathan Clowens really, again, basing on the work of, of Rav David Hoffman and others, really just talks about this category of moral impurity that's, uh, wholly separate from ritual impurity. And moral impurity is not something that affects the body. Right? Moral impurity is something that actually affects the land and the Beit HaMikdash. Right? So how do we know this? If you think about it, if, if you know, I, I mentioned before, if ritual impurity stands in opposition to purity, so moral impurity stands in opposition to holiness. Hashem tells us, Kedoshim to you. We are meant to be like God, and we are meant to be holy, and so we're supposed to engage in certain behaviors, and more importantly, refrain from other behaviors. And that's by definition, emulating God and trying to be kadosh. And when we don't do those things, or when we override prohibitions, and the Torah is really pretty specific about the, the three sort of cardinal sins, right? Uh, so murder, uh, idol, foreign worship, and the sexual prohibitions, as I mentioned. So what happens is there's this sort of, and, and again, it's sort of strange, I think, to modern listeners, but the Torah is very clear that it's a, a very, uh, something literal, really, that takes place, is that this moral impurity doesn't affect the person. It doesn't affect the body of the person, right? By definition, a sinner is meant to actually go to the Beit HaMikdash to, to uh, purify his right, to, to bring the korbanot, to counteract the effects of the sin, the moral impurity doesn't make the body impure. It doesn't make the person impure. It's not, as we mentioned before, transmittable. But it almost, if we think about it, and again, I don't know that there's any perfect term for this, tum'ah, um, but Jonathan Clowns talks about it almost as a pollutant, almost as something that sort it's of a this... Spir- it's a spiritual impurity. I don't think yeah. we have to look yeah. so much further. I mean, <laughs> you certainly will find that in in every other work that isn't a, a classic halachic, meaning it's just to go one Correct. step beyond the halachic category. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's a spiritual pollutant. It, it, it changes somebody's character. 
It impacts the environment around you. It changes the world, meaning our actions Correct. impact the world. These are things that on a halachic level, we don't speak about them as much, but any discussion that goes beyond that realm certainly will. Yeah, a hundred percent, Yosef. I think that's, that's really, really true. Um, I think what's fascinating about the way the Torah talks about moral impurity, you know, what you were talking about as affecting the person and affecting society, those are things that are more or less, uh, difficult to, to sort of quantify. And what the Tanakh is saying here in Vayikra, and it says it in numerous other places, and then if you pick up on the language of Vayikra, is that once the land becomes, it's almost as if the land can absorb that much impurity, mm-hmm. and once the land becomes oversaturated, again, you know, I'm, I'm using imperfect terms, but once the land becomes oversaturated, that it spits us out, that there's this really very dynamic relationship we have with the land, um, that and and our behavior and the degree of our morality and the degree to which we abide by the morals you know that the Tanakh provides for us or the Torah provides for us is something that's very very tangible and that's why implicit in the you know the psukim that Hashem is saying the people that came here before you they did all these things right and then the land spit them out because the land will not tolerate people murdering other people and so the implicit warning in there or, or explicit really is you better be careful and you better maintain uh, certain behaviors if you want to stay You know, as you mentioned already, that the that the prophets really pick up in this idea, but it might sound very banal to us because, well, of course, Am Yisrael were exiled from the land of Israel because of their sins. Of course, this is the theology that underrides that 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 underrides that whole that whole historical process. But what's fascinating is that if you look, there's a parak in Yirmiyahu that I think is phenomenal. I believe it's Parak Memchet uh, 48. But where you hear the perspective of, of those and their children of those who were kicked out of Yerushalayim and they say, what do you mean? It's because we stopped worshiping Avodah Zerah we were kicked out of Israel. And so their perspective during that time was that it's because when Yoshio came around, we actually listened to him and we stopped worshiping Avodah Zerah, we stopped worshiping farm worship and then we were kicked out. But to us, it seems obvious because the theological narration of so many of our biblical books is that we sinned, we didn't worship God, the Beit Midash was destroyed, but that was a, a perspective that developed over time. You know, they weren't holding these books in their hands when these processes were happening. So that was a perspective that we gained over long historical periods. But that idea, I think, is critical. And I think that we might have to be careful about how and when and where we say it. But I mean, we have to wonder, is that still true today? Meaning, is the land able to handle, is the land able to spiritually handle only a certain amount of of mess ups, of moral of, of, of moral mess ups on our part before we can lose it. Right. And and I, I think that's huge. And I would say also, you know, something that that, you know, a lot of times it's funny, I'm teaching a course this year on temple, right? Mikdash, what it meant and how it evolved sort of, you know, alongside the theology of ancient Israel. And one of the obvious questions, right? One of the things that everyone always asks is do we really want a third Beit HaMikdash? Is there, you know, do we have hopes to be, you know, standing in a temple where people are sprinkling blood, etc.? You know, and, and there's clearly very uh, powerful, or I would say sort of very, very uh, clear stances on each side of the aisle. But I think what's what's interesting, you know, if we look at the language, even if we look at the language just of Yom Kippur, 
right? It says, right? That we don't think about it. We think nowadays of, you know, go, you know, standing on Yom Kippur and banging on our chests and apologizing to God for not being a good person. And if we look at the text in Vayikra, the Kohen is actually going in and purifying the temple so that God can still dwell there, right? It's that our morality creates this impurity or a lack of morality creates this aerial impurity that affects places in a real, really tangible way. And if we weren't to purify the Beit HaMikdash once a year on Yom Kippur, then like you mentioned, you know, God couldn't dwell there. And once God leaves, you know, that whole chain of events that we then call exile sort of unfurls. Right, and what you're saying also, to go back to a point you made earlier, which is that people tend to, over um over emphasize the metaphor here and what you're saying is that the psukim are not speaking in metaphor and i I know that he says it as well in his chapter um but it's not a metaphor meaning there's an actual impurity that is created and again we never have to deep dig further than than corona okay these these parallels are very very strong in our minds at this point um but that there's actually something that's there that is that has been desecrated and that needs to be rectified and it's interesting this goes to to sort of a point that I think is so huge and so overlooked in Tanakh. And I think it's overlooked for a million different reasons. Um, I think our connection to the land is much less immediate. And um, I think our interactions with nature is different. I think Jews living in exile for thousands of years, are for many, many reasons, our connection with the land has been attenuated, etc. But um, what you're talking about and what you're saying in terms of it being real it exists in Tanakh even before the concept of purity and impurity. If we look at the very first act of immorality, right? The first act of immorality is when Cain kills Hevel. That's the first, or the first act of violence, let's call it, right? These sort of paradigmatic damim that the Torah warns against. And what's fascinating is if you look at the Tzukim there in Vrishit, so it doesn't say Hashem gets angry. You don't <laughs> see God getting angry. <laughs> Correct. And, and it goes on. It says, right? It makes, you know, we think of the land as not inanimate, right? We know that the land is animate. We know things grow. We know. But we don't think of the land as an actor in history and in our faith. And then the punishment for Cain, by the way, goes further. It doesn't say that Hashem is going to be mad at him. It says, right? Because it says, you're going to work the land, but it's not going to give back to you because you offended it by the way you behaved and you are meant to live in harmony with all of nature. And so when you are not behaving in the most quintessential human way, which is to create life and to promote life, when you're doing the opposite, the land will not treat you like like a Ben Adam, so to speak. And I think that, you know, if we look throughout Tanakh, that is such a profound idea that we're so uh, cut off from, again, physically and uh, conceptually. And I think it's just, it's such an important point. I'll just round off that piece before we move on to the to the last portion of our conversation. That there's a great quote by uh, Rav Menachem Fruman in his work. Um, I'll link it in the show notes. I think it's called Sadikim to Hakim, the righteous laugh. I have to look it up. Um, but he has a piece like there. The title. Where, what? <laughs> I just like the title. Yeah, <laughs> he has a piece there. It's like sort of these little snippets. The whole book is little snippets of things, of quotes of his. And one of them where he speaks about the importance of walking barefoot in the land of Israel. And he says that 
um, that when you walk barefoot, you're connecting to a life force that is so much greater than, uh, you know, than, than we possess in our individual bodies. And that's so when you walk around barefoot in Israel, you know, we think of going on a tiul, you know, and you know, and all these other halachic phrases we're familiar with. But he speaks about it classically for him on a more spiritual plane of that when you're touching literally physically the land of Israel, you will be imbibing a life force and a kedusha that you, that when you're wearing shoes, it creates a barrier between you and the land. So, I mean, there's just... A, uh, yeah, exactly. So that was actually <laughs> something we touched upon in my episode with Tanya a few weeks ago. So just to, to put in that piece. But I'm curious, Elle, if you could speak to the idea about uh, how the barrier or the delineation between these two purity systems is sort of you know, changed or evolved over the years. Why is it that we, that we sort of... I think many people listening will hear mm-hmm. this episode and will think, Oh my God, that's so obvious. <laughs> how, how did I not think about that before? Right? How I hope I- so. And that's actually why I wanted to talk about him because whenever you hear a concept and all of a sudden you're like, how did I never see that before? You realize it's a brilliant and amazing concept, right? Yeah. That's like, that's the goal. But again, he's very open about the fact that it's not his own uh, and that he's Correct. building off of Correct. previous ideas. And, and, and I think, but so what, but what changed? Meaning why, why did we lose that, that uh, delineation? Right. So I will, again, and I don't know how much time we have left. I definitely in the next couple of minutes, we do not, you know, there, there's certainly not enough time, and I'm also certainly not an authority on, you know, rabbinic halachic um, sort of response or, or how how Chazal sort of utilize the systems. I will recommend two um, scholars that I think really, I mean, Jonathan Clowens, I mentioned, he's the first one. He has excellent works on this. Uh, Christine Hayes also talks a lot about this topic. Um, and, you know, sort of, you know, al regal one of the things that happens is that, uh, first of all, we have a diaspora jury that becomes much, uh, that's much further from the mikdash. And so the day-to-day ritual uh, purity system becomes less relevant. That's A. But I think more importantly, what we begin to see really, we see it already with the language that Yechaskel uses when he talks. Um, he borrows language really from the purity of the priests not being allowed to marry the lay people, right? Not being allowed to marry in the daughter of a non-priest. He sort of borrows that language and extends it to other topics. And then, you know, most profoundly within the biblical period, because I'll just stick for a second, just the biblical period, we see uh, in the work of Ezra Nehemiah also a borrowing of the language and sort of a, a conflating of different categories. So when Ezra wants to begin to define, you know, Jewish as linked to genealogy as opposed to geography, which is a major, you know, sort of watershed moment in Jewish history. So he, he talks about the concept of Am Yisrael being a Zera Kadosh, right? That we are a pure seed and therefore we can't, uh, intermarry with Vichol, right? We can't intermarry. Now, those are not concepts that are ever really discussed in earlier periods in Tanakh for a whole host, you know, again, as I mentioned, of ideological and polemical reasons. The different, two different strands of impurity that are so distinct in the Torah, uh, become mixed for, for, you know, in Ezra Nehemiah, for example, for reasons of preserving the community and the cohesiveness of the community. And then later on, uh, in rabbinic literature, also for very distinct ideological purposes to remain distinct from the goyim, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, but again, I, you know, that's one of the things that's so fascinating is when we come at a certain point in history and then we have to sort of work backwards to the original sources and, and then see how those concepts evolved and became intertwined. You know, sometimes in my teaching, I like to compare, you know, because you and I both really focus in our teaching on the biblical text. A lot of times I look at the biblical text as the the acoustic version of a song um, <laughs> because you sort of have to pull back all the layers of the production and the the effects and the different harmonies that have beautifully accompanied that tune throughout the centuries. But when you go back to the biblical text, 
I find it very inspiring. Uh, it doesn't necessarily make, it doesn't make me lose my faith in all the processes that have come after. For me, I love being able to discover what I see as like a kernel of how something came to be. For me, also like looking up Hilchot Pesach in the Torah always brings that that metaphor to mind very very strongly. Hundred percent. But I think that that's a really that's a really important point, and I agree. Anybody who wants to sort of understand a little bit more, even just on a basic um, Tanakh level, go and read Ezra chapter nine and 10 mm-hmm. uh, in that whole episode of the foreign women and some of the commentaries on it. It's, it's a watershed moment and nothing less for ancient Israelite history. Mm-hmm. But in, in the time we have remaining, Gail, I really wanted to talk a little bit about the significance of this, meaning why does it matter? Why, why is this important for us to, to know going forward? You know, again, I think that we think of the land as something that we step on, that we trot on, right? And you mentioned uh, Yosefa, right? It's sort of at the risk of touching on the political, right? As maybe something we own or we fight over. And, and I think today we certainly, uh, there's a lot of talk these days about global warming, right? It's really critical. My daughter sees us, you know, using plastic straws and she flips out and starts talking about all the sea turtles we're killing by doing it, right? And, and she's right. And we should care about she's that. Right. <laughs> and, and it's real, no, 100%. And, we, you know, it's so, so critical. Um, but I think that this whole way of conceiving impurity and specifically moral impurity, um, it, it goes beyond just carbon footprint, right? It's sort of that we see the land as alive and vibrant and something that has volition. And, you know, when I mentioned the, the scene with Kain and Hevel, Hashem doesn't get angry. The land refuses to participate in our endeavors. And so, you know, I, I think it's, it's less just about I need to respect the earth so that I can preserve it for my grandchildren and more sort of you know, synthesizing, like you mentioned before, you brought in the word spirituality. It's sort of synthesizing the physical and the spiritual, right? It's our responsibility, la'avdau l'shamra, to physically care for the world, but that that needs to come hand in hand with our spiritual care. And the Torah outlines how to spiritually care for the earth. And I think that that's huge. I think that's so, so important. Um, and then, you know, the other piece, I think, is, you know, just simply put, uh, well, obviously, you know, sorry, I skipped actually the most important point, which is the idea that you mentioned, right? How relevant it is in our lives, right? I think beyond, if you're not, if, if is not something that's front and center in your mind. So then beyond that, you know, other than washing our hands when we leave a funeral, God forbid, right? Or toveling new dishes, the notion of impurity really does feel foreign and removed from our daily religious experience. And I think that what this understanding sort of brings to the table is that consciousness and that awareness that impurity is very real and and very relevant in our day to day lives, much more so uh, than you know than just you know dumping a, dumping a new dish into the mikvah before you use it. Um, but I think perhaps most importantly, and at least this is you know for for myself, this was really something that that I think this whole approach t- touches upon. Um, you know, it's sometimes I think in the world that we live in, um, it, it's sometimes almost difficult to not be self absorbed. Right. Like we live in a world where we have our own echo chambers and where we have and, you know, and there's this sort of um, narcissistic reality to the existence that, that we live. And I think that what this system reminds us of um, is that religion, at least the way that religion is envisioned in the Torah with people living in the land of Israel. And, and by the way, I think the argument can be made that this applies to land outside of Israel as well. Um, but that's a whole separate discussion. But I think, you know. Religion is not about our private relationship with God. It's that also, right? And it's about our own self-improvement and about our, you know, bettering ourselves and being the best people that we can be, you know, maximizing our potential. But I, I think a piece that's so important is that, you know, when, when you sin in the Torah, so those sins tangibly affect the fate of the community in which we live. Right? If you think about it, and I think Chazal understood this uh, very, very much so, because if you look even at the liturgy on Yom Kippur, I mentioned that Yom Kippur were purifying the temple, not purifying just ourselves. 
Um, and if you look at the language, the liturgy of, of Yom Kippur, it's always the first person plural, Ashamnu Bagadnu, right? Which really stands, I think, just in stark contrast to this modern approach we have to religion where it's about my righteousness and my relationship with God. All of that is important. Um, but to recognize that we are part of something bigger and the way we choose to live our lives impacts the whole and impacts, like you mentioned before, you know, society and has sort of reverberates. I think, I think it's so big and it's so huge. And if we, you know, if we have a way to understand it and, and sometimes, you know, I always say vocabulary is one of the most important pieces of our ability to talk about anything, right? So if we have the vocabulary, if I can recognize that by me choosing something, I am, you know, sort of generating this impurity around me, that's something I could be much more conscious of um, and conscious, you know, that it's not just me. I live, um, I belong to something bigger than myself. Yeah, you know, I agree with you that it's it's definitely countercultural uh, in many aspects mm-hmm. today. Um, and I think that a lot of the revolutions that need to happen today is simply recalling older ideas and Torot and bringing them back into fashion. <laughs> and one piece that I also would add to that, the communal piece, which I think is is tremendous and really, really monumental, is also when I think of the the ritual impurity, uh, I think about the things that are uh, not of our own volition, as we mentioned earlier. Those are facts of life, you know, things that come out of people's bodies, things we come into contact with. Um, but when we talk about the moral impurities, it's a it's a space of a tremendous choice that we have in our life. And while it's become, you know, out of fashion because we don't want to shame people or we don't want to point a finger and also because we know women really suffer tremendously because of a lot of these ideas throughout throughout the ages. So we sort of like threw the baby out with the bathwater of saying that we don't want to talk about the way that we can impurify ourselves or the way that we defile ourselves, even on the metaphorical sense. And I think that the idea that we're speaking about today really calls us to question what what impurities we bring into our life. And I'm even going to really go on a minor muster schmooze and even mention, <laughs> you know, content we see, whether in, in movies and in TV or people we surround ourselves with. And that category of impurity really calls us to question what are the what are the moral impurities that we have brought into our life? Um, because those are complete matters of choice. Um, we None of it is put upon us. It's, it's a matter of the life we want to mold and create. But with that, yeah, I think we'll we'll call our episode to a close today. And I really want to thank you for being here. It was my first opportunity to have a chance to speak with you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Yosefa. Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.